What's up, Wildside Besties and Baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. What's up? What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in and listening to your wild side besties and baddies. I'm here with my sister, Chelsea. What's up, wild siders? So today we are going to present a case that is from the Fort Worth area. Ooh, I love me some Fort Worth. Have you been to Fort Worth lately? I haven't. It's been a while since I've been to Fort Worth. Dude, I love Fort Worth. I love going down to the stockyards. It's just a whole different, like, Western cowboy boho vibe. I love it. Did I ever tell you the time that Zach used to tell his friends that I was into hobos? And he was... Mm. He was trying to explain that my style was boho, and he kept saying uh-huh. hobos, and his friends were like, that's really weird. Like, why is your wife into hobos? And I'm sure, oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> poor Zach. He was so excited. He was so excited about your love for all things hobos. Hobos. And so anytime we go somewhere, he's like, oh, look, babe, it's a hobo. It's a hobo table. It's a hobo table. Look at that really cool macrame yeah. hobo hanging. So we won't bore you guys with our back and forth banter. Um, I am just going to pick this up and run with it. You good with that, Charles? I'm always good with that. So I'm going to be diving into a 49-year-old missing persons case that is still unsolved to this day no yeah unsolved cases are so sad to me i mean but also so intriguing right yeah i hate the mystery around the disappearance of these girls and it's unfathomable to think about what the families have experienced for creeping into five decades Mm -mm. no matter how many years old a case is the victims deserve to be found and their voices heard Mm mm-hmm This case will be puzzling, frustrating, and disheartening, but nonetheless deserves our time and attention for the victims. Mm -hmm. This is the case of the Fort Worth missing trio. Okay, I'm ready for it. Have you heard of them yet? I have not. I have not. Like I said, the only thing that I do in Fort Worth is I go to stockyards and eat good barbecue and this really great ice cream shop that's down there. Well, this is going to have none of that in it. Mm-hmm. Not my fourth word. Not my sweet cowboy Fort Worth. Yeah. On December 23rd, 1974, Mary Rachel Trulicka, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julie Ann Mosley decided to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. The three girls hopped into a beige 1972 Oldsmobile belonging to Rachel's husband, and headed to their first stop. The three girls stopped at a surplus store in Fort Worth, Texas, where Renee had to pick up some items she had on layaway. Once that was done, they decided to head over to the Seminary South Shopping Center, which is now known as La Grand Plaza de Fort Worth. When the shopping center closed later that night, the Oldsmobile was still sitting in the Sears parking lot with Christmas gifts locked inside it. The three girls were never seen again. Now, let's really dive into these three girls and bring to life who they were before we go into the into depth about the details of the dynamics of the victims, the disappearance, and the investigation, if you want to call it that, and the case's current status. Mm-hmm. The oldest of the Fort Worth trio was 17-year-old Mary Rachel Trelicka, born Mary Rachel Arnold, and she was known as Rachel to her family and friends. So even though her legal name was Mary Rachel, she went by Rachel, and I'll be referring to her as Rachel throughout this episode. Okay. Rachel was born on November 15, 1957, to a Raymond Cotton Arnold 
and Frances Fran Langston. Rachel grew up in a middle-class neighborhood in South Fort Worth, known as Greenbrier, with her mother, father, her older sister, Deborah, and her younger brother, Rusty. What is unfortunate is that there were reports that Rachel's father, Cotton, was physically abusive to the girls, Deborah and Rachel, not so much to Rusty because he was the boy Cotton always wanted. There have also been mentions in several different reports that I found that there were other kinds of abuse, but nothing has been confirmed. So I didn't really want to get into the hearsay. I just wanted to paint a picture that there were some dysfunctional dynamics in the household for Rachel growing up. Mm-hmm. And it it is her, it is mom and dad, biological, right? Not stepdad or anything like that. Correct. And just as a side note, there's been no indication that Rachel's father was involved in her disappearance in any way. Again, I just wanted to paint the dynamics of her childhood and the dynamics of her life. Yeah. That was going on when she disappeared. Yeah. It's no surprise that at 17 years old, with what we've talked about while attending Southwest High School in Fort Worth, Rachel married 21-year-old Thomas Tommy Trilica and moved out of their family's house. Yeah. She lived just a few minutes away from her family in a house with her husband, Tommy, her older sister, Deborah. So her older sister moved out with them Mm -hmm. and Tommy's two-year-old son, Sean, from his previous marriage. Okay. She and Tommy had only been married six months when Rachel disappeared. I'm also going to include the physical descriptions of the girls at the time of their disappearances in hopes that somebody somewhere has a recovered memory. You know, I was literally just thinking because my sister-in-law, her mom and dad grew up in the Fort Worth area. And I mean, that would be about the age, like when Mimi was in 19, you said 74? 74, yeah. Yeah. So Mimi would have probably been either about to graduate high school or getting close to it. So it's like you never know, right? Yeah, there could have been some overlap. Okay, so physical descriptions. Rachel was a a white female. She stood 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed about 108 pounds. So she's a fairly petite little girl. Lucky. Lucky. She had long brown hair, green eyes, and a chipped upper front tooth. And she also had a small scar on her chin. It was reported that she was wearing her wedding band at the time of the disappearance. Okay. Rachel was 17 when she disappeared in 1974. She would be 66 years old today. Okay. Lisa Renee Wilson was the second youngest of the trio. She was 14 at the time of the disappearance, and she went by Renee. Renee was born on August 29th, 1960, to Richard and Judy Wilson. Renee had a younger brother, Ricky. I did not find a whole lot of information about Renee's childhood or family dynamics like Rachel, uh, but I will include the description that was given by her family at the time of the disappearance. Renee Wilson was a fair-skinned white female who at the time was 5 feet 2 inches tall and weighed about 110 pounds. She had light, wavy brown hair with reddish highlights. Holla! brown eyes, and a scar on the inside of one of her thighs. Clothing that she was known to be wearing when she disappeared includes bluish purple hip hugger pants because it's 74 and you know that they had some amazing hip hugger pants. I hope so. A white pullover sweatshirt with the words sweet honesty in green letters, red and white Oxford type of shoes, and a promise ring with a single clear stone. Renee was 14 when she disappeared in 1974 and would be 63 years old today. Okay. The youngest of the girls was Julie Ann Mosley, and she was nine at the time of her disappearance. She was born on April 5th, 1965, to a John Walden Mose, so he went by Mose, Mosley, and Rayanne Mosley. She grew up with her parents and her two older siblings. Her brother, Terry, the oldest, and her older sister, Janet, was the middle child. In the reports that I found at the time of Julie's disappearance, 
She was living with her mother, but I believe her parents were separated at the time. Like Renee, I didn't find too much information on her upbringing or childhood, but also share that will also share the description that was given at the time of her disappearance. Julie was a white female who at the time was four feet, three inches tall and 85 pounds. She had shoulder length, sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. She had a small scar under her left eye, a scar in the middle of her forehead and a scar on the back of her calf. I could not find if it was her right or left calf, but nonetheless, she had a scar on the back of her calf. Clothing she was known to be wearing when she disappeared included a red shirt with dark jeans and red tennis shoes. Julie was just nine years old when she disappeared in 1974 and would be 58 years old today. Now you're gonna, I'm you're gonna tell us why we had such a range of ages. Yes, I will get into that. Yeah. Okay. And I also, before I forget, want to say that I will put their pictures in the show notes, along with an age progression that was done. So it'll give you a picture of what they looked like at in 1974 at the time of their disappearance, and then an age progression picture for each one to give you an idea of what they'd look like at these ages today. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm going to move into the dynamics of the trio. If you look at pictures of them, they were just beautiful, precious girls. They have that look that they were happy and still had so much life ahead of them. Now we have heard these girls being called the Fort Worth Trio, and I think it's important to try and set up the dynamics of Rachel, Renee, and Julie, and how they all ended up together that morning in 1974. Okay. The first piece to note is that the Arnolds, which is Rachel's family, and the Wilsons, which is Renee's family, lived only a few blocks away from each other in the Greenbrier neighborhood in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. This makes sense because, by all accounts, their families were close. They would go camping together. They would take trips to Bittenbrook Lake almost every month when the weather permitted. Rachel and Renee were particularly close, despite Renee being two grades below Rachel at Southwest High School. Now, how Julie fits into all of this is, I'm just going to put a little note here, is some of these dynamics get a little hard to follow, so just... I'll do my best to make it make sense. So the nine-year-old Julie lived across the street from 14-year-old Renee, her grandmother's house. Right. So when Renee would go visit Grammy, she would probably see Julie. And yes. They just kind of became friends type of thing while she was yes. hanging out over at her Grammy's house. Yes. And another layer to that is Renee was dating Julie's older brother, Terry. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So nine-year-old Julie had an older brother, Terry, and he was mm-hmm. dating Renee. Yes. And Renee's grandmother lived across the street from Terry and Julie. Okay. Correct. In fact, Terry had given Renee a promise ring just the morning before she disappeared. Golly. And that was the single stone ring that she was wearing when she disappeared in the description. Mm-hmm. So the overlap of the girls included being neighbors along with living and dating dynamics because do you remember when I told you that Rachel's older sister, Deborah, was also living with her? Right. Yes. And her, her and her husband, they live just a few minutes away from Renee's house. Okay. Okay. So they all kind of lived within a radius of each other, so not too far. And that was part of the dynamics of how they knew each other. Okay. Probably riding bikes, right? It's it's the 70s. I'm sure they rode their bikes yeah, to each other's sure. houses. Well, I hope that they actually wore the four-wheeled like, skates. No, absolutely they did. Absolutely they did. Yeah. I was the coolest person ever in Grammy's neighborhood going up and down the sidewalk in my four-wheel skates. And that was in right. the early 90s. So you know yeah. how cool they were in the 70s. They, 
On the morning of the disappearance, which was December 23rd, 1974, it was just two days before Christmas, and Rachel, the oldest of the girls, invited 14-year-old Renee to go do some last-minute Christmas shopping with her that day. Rachel really wanted to pick up a gift for her stepson, Sean, since they would be having him on Christmas Day that year. And you said Sean was like two, something like that? He was two, yeah. Okay. And remember that the youngest girl, Julie, her brother was dating Renee, so she knew her pretty well. Mm-hmm. Well, when she was told that they were going shopping, as any nine-year-old would, she asked to tag along at the last minute because she was bored. And I mean, she wanted to hang out with cool older kids rather than playing at home. Absolutely. Right. You were that younger kid. You always wanted me to take you places, take you to the pool, take you everywhere. Everywhere. Yes. So when the two older girls caved, they said, oh, okay. They did tell her that she would need to get permission to go. So Julie ran inside and asked her mom if she could go. And what's so sad about this is the mom initially said no. But what did Julie do? Please, 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 let me go. She kept whining that she couldn't play with anybody. And mom finally told her that she could go, but she had to be home by six o'clock that evening. So around noon that day on December 23rd, the three girls piled into the Oldsmobile and headed into town to do some shopping. Another side note, and I didn't really know to put this in. Uh, but it's just, it's still also a sad part about this. Renee, the 14-year-old, her boyfriend Terry was supposed to go with him that day. But he backed out last minute because his friend got really sick and he went to visit him in the hospital instead. Mm. I just feel like all of these stories have so many, like, if we would have just just said no if he would have just gone with them like it just seems like they always have that hindsight is 2020 yeah situation yeah for sure when the girls arrived to the shopping center rachel parked the car and they headed into the shopping center to pick up their christmas gifts there were several witnesses that had reported seeing the girls in the mall that day And we know they made it into the mall because, remember, the Christmas gifts were sitting in the rear floorboard of the car when the car was discovered. Mm -hmm. 4 p.m. rolls around. That's when people start getting worried because Renee had a Christmas party to attend at 4 p.m. And she was going to go with Terry, her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So it was weird that she wasn't back home by then. She had also told her grandmother to pick her up at 6 p.m. to go to this party. So they had plans at these different times for the Christmas parties. So they Mm -hmm. should have been back home well before 4 o'clock. So the families became super concerned, and they decided to drive to the Seminary South Shopping Center, which is where the girls had told them that they were going, in order to go search for them. The families arrived around 6 p.m. that evening and found Rachel's car parked in the Sears upper-level parking lot, but there was no sign of Rachel, Renee, or Julie. The families then went store-to-store to page the girls, but they were nowhere to be found. I believe it was around 11 p.m. that the missing girls were, were reported to police, but can you guess what I'm about to say about that? Well, you had to wait 48 hours, I think, back then. Was it 48 hours? Not yet. And close, good good guess, but they were treated initially as runaways. runaways. Yeah. Yep. In an interview with Johnny Alpewing in Portrait of a True Crime Character, Rusty, who was Rachel's younger brother, shared that his older sister, Deborah, who was 19 at the time. So Deborah, Rachel, and Rusty were siblings. Mm -hmm. Deborah was the oldest at 19, Rachel at 17. Rusty had said that Deborah had been the rebellious teenager. She was the one who had run off for days at a time before coming home. And he said that it kind of made sense for his sister, Rachel, to maybe do the same thing. 
But he said in this situation, it didn't make any sense. Because to Rusty, what was the, the oddest part about it is why would they take nine-year-old Julie with them? Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, I don't want to babysit. I mean, if I'm going to run away, like, I don't want to. Yeah. I would not be living my best life with a nine-year-old. No. And, and most teenage girls are not going to jump on that. And you know what, though? Yeah. And she's like, she has no reason to run away. She's married. She has her own life. She has her own vehicle. Like, I can't speak for Renee, but Rachel, like, there's no there's no reason to run away. Yeah. Renee neither, because she just got a promise ring. Someone put a ring on that finger. That's right. She's balling. She's balling at 14. Lucky? Golly. Do we want to talk about that I didn't have a prom date? Do we, do we want to I talk about that? I think we already did that one. No, I know we've done it. I just feel like I need to keep talking about it. I, I don't think I'm at rest with it. I think I just want to add that you sure didn't get a promise ring at 14 either. I sure as heck did not get a promise ring at 14. I got a Sally Jesse Raphael pair of glasses. <laughs> and a Tasmanian devil shirt. And a Tasmanian devil shirt. Golly. So I'm going to bring up a kind of bizarre piece to this story the day after rachel renee and julie disappeared which is now christmas eve so december 24th 1974 the police start showing up at the arnold's household which is rachel's parents to interview mm -hmm. and ask questions this is also when one of the only physical pieces of evidence in this case shows up Rachel's husband, Tommy, and Rachel's older sister, Deborah, because remember, they were living in the same house all together. Right, right. They show up to the Arnold's house holding a letter. On the outside, the letter was written in pencil. In the upper left-hand corner of the letter on the envelope was the name Rachel. And it was formally addressed to Thomas A. Trilika. Inside the envelope was a message written in ballpoint ink mm -hmm. that read, now this is real bizarre and it doesn't make any sense to me. It read, quote, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. Does that make any sense to you? What in the actual? She had to catch it. She was going to catch it. Say it. Okay, read that again. I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. Okay. So catch it, meaning I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. I know I'm like, I know I'm going to catch these hands. I don't know. Over this, like. Now, just to add to the mystery of this letter, it appeared to be initially misspelled. And the L in Rachel's name looked like it was originally written in a lowercase e, like Rachie. Like hmm. somebody was misspelling the name. Mm-hmm. Whoever wrote it had gone over it again to mm -hmm. form the correct big loop L. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's, I don't feel like that's super uncommon, though. I do that stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, you're writing fast, the L and the E are right next to each other. But hopefully you have some super cool, mysterious thing to tell me about the L and the E. That's all. But there's more mis mystery around the envelope in the letter. The stamp on the envelope had been canceled that morning. So remember, it's December 24th. The cancellation did not include a city. And the zip code of the cancellation was blurred. Investigators interpreted the five-digit number to indicate that the letter had been mailed either from one of the three Texas towns. Throckmorton. Yeah. Eliasville, which is close to Throckmorton, or mm -hmm. Weatherford. Okay. Or as I used to call it, Weathersby. 
and not like when I was nine, like when I was a full tw 30 years old, still called it Weathersby. And Lucas finally was like, will you please start calling it by its proper name, Weatherford? Yeah. yeah, it's a hard name. So both Renee's father, Richard, and Rachel's mother, Fran, were skeptical that this letter was genuine and from the girls. They didn't buy it. Well, did it look like anybody's handwriting? Did anybody comment on if it looked like their handwriting or not? The letter has been sent to the FBI not once, not twice, three different occasions. And all times the results were ruled as inconclusive as far as handwriting samples for many of the girls. What's more is the confusion around the zip code on the envelope that housed this letter. Now, did they actually get the letter in the mail? Yes. So Deborah got it, went out to her mailbox, checked the mail, and it was in there. I believe so. I mean, it wasn't like they found it in a car or they found it anywhere else. It was delivered to them. Okay. It wasn't like left on Rachel's nightstand. No. Like a Dear John type of No, letter. it was like an actual delivered letter. And it said it was from Rachel and to her husband. Yes, but it was so formal, and she, everybody knew that she called him Tommy. She never called him Thomas. Right. What's more is the confusion around the zip code on the envelope that housed this letter. Reports say that the last letter of the numbers appears to be an 8, but is smudged or faded. If the zip code was 76088, with the final number being an 8, that would mean that the letter would have come from Weatherford, Texas, which is about 40 minutes west of Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. If the zip code was 76083, with the final number being an inverted 3, this seems less likely because that zip code is not currently an active zip code. Okay. Records do indicate, though, that Though it's not active now, it was in 1974. Also, since the three was printed backwards, if it were an actual three, it leads to questions if this letter had been hand-loaded in a stamp. What do you mean hand-loaded in a stamp? I mean, I don't know the mechanics of it, but back then they could hand-load it in a, in a backwards way. So the three would be inverted, like if you loaded the letter upside down. Hmm. Instead okay. of it being an automated thing like we have now. Oh, okay, okay. So back then, it would have been the zip code for Throckmorton, Texas, before it was changed years later. Okay. However, neither Weatherford nor Throckmorton is on the way to Houston like the letter indicated. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, no, no, it's it's absolutely not. Being in the Texas area, literally there is absolutely no reason why you would go to either of those towns if you're trying to go to Houston. Exactly. Unless you were like, oh, there's this really cool like hole-in-the-wall barbecue restaurant that we really want to try out on the way there, but there's 17... 14 and 9. Like, they don't right. care about cool hole-in-the-wall barbecue restaurants in Throck Throckmorton. Right. And on that note, I wanted to add, and I'm not really sure of the dates, but sometime between 2001 and 2010, DNA analysis was performed from the DNA collected on the envelope. However, it did not match. Was it murder? I don't know. It did not match any of the three girls or anyone in police database at the time. So even though this was literally, literally the only physical piece of evidence in this case, it seems to have created more questions than answers. Hopefully one day, whoever sent this letter will mess up and their DNA will end up in the system to be cross-checked. Hmm. Right. There's, uh, yeah, there's got to be like with all the ancestry.com, there's got to be some weird 
hit, even if it's not in police records, right? Like, can't you find stuff, DNA stuff through yeah. ancestry? I mean, that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Well, yeah, I mean, like, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't figure out whose spit lick is on the back of an envelope. Like, we've got to, this has got to be, it's got to be know. a thing. I know, it's frustrating. I'll digress. I just had a thought. Go ahead. Yeah. So let's look a little bit into the investigation part of this case. According to the article Portrait of a True Crime Character by Johnny Alping, Rachel's brother Rusty was quoted as saying that the police, quote, treated it like a runaway case, 100%, end quote. I mean, I don't know, kind of rightly so, because if you have a letter that's saying that we But that did didn't well. come until 24 hours after. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, did they, I mean, does Deborah, was Deborah on the radar as far as her having a past with running away? You know what I mean? Were the police like, oh, it's kind of like her older sister. She's probably run away just like her older sister. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Fort Worth was a smaller town back then, too. There might have been a little bit of that. Yeah, we know about the family. She's, you know, the older sister's run away. This is probably little sister just pulling some older sister shenanigans. Which is why you should never go in with family bias into cases. And we're going to kind of touch on that in just a little bit. Okay. Remember earlier in the episode when we were talking about the day of the disappearance and that Oldsmobile, Rachel's car, being found in the second level of the Sears parking lot? Correct. That was her husband's, right? That was Tommy's car? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, by all accounts, and this is so frustrating, police didn't take any fingerprints or check the car for any evidence until a year after the disappearance. Uh. Why? Again, because they presume that these three girls just ran away with plans to return later. And my biggest question and my biggest hang-up with this is, why on earth would two teenagers and a child acquaintance run off for a week, two days before Christmas, when they were literally out buying Christmas gifts for their loved ones? Yeah. I, I just cannot get behind this theory because of so many reasons. So, first of all, there were presents left in the vehicle. This indicates that they went shopping literally with the intentions of returning with Christmas presents for their loved ones, like I said, right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention, as we said earlier, if the girls had plans to run away for what, a girl's trip? Mm -hmm. They probably wouldn't have let the nine-year-old tag along from the beginning. They would yeah. have told her no. Okay, I'm going to stop you though really quick because I know that we reference um, Mine Hunters. We referenced it last time. But to be fair to the police force, when did they actually start having an, you know, like a criminology forensic, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't think they had the information. I just don't think they were as savvy to it in 1974. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think they might not have had some of the tools or techniques that we have now to help us solve cases, but they had their brains. Well, I know. And common sense that says these girls probably didn't just run off. Okay, but again, they probably were just like, yeah, that's what they all do. They run off. They come back in a couple of days. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't think people, I don't think people think like us, Bailey. I know. They're just like, oh, they probably went down to the Whataburger. They'll be back in a, in a day or so. Furthermore, remember earlier when I said that Renee had just received a promise ring from her boyfriend, Terry, yes. literally the day before? Right. I wrote, that girl was smitten, and she had plans that evening to be with him and attend a Christmas party. No 14-year-old yeah. that just received a promise ring is going to run off on a girl's trip to Houston. No. I Again, I totally agree with you, but I'm just wondering if that's what the authorities were thinking at the time. Yeah. And and not to mention, again, they probably didn't have much money to begin with. And they right? left their car. How are you going to take a road trip and leave your no whole car. ass fucking car? Houston, and I looked it up, 
So from Fort Worth to Houston, it's approximately 263 miles or a four to five hour car drive. So, wow. And in the 70s, it probably took longer because I'm sure they didn't right. have the 75 mile per hour speed limit. Right. And why go to Houston? Houston's gross. And just to touch on the, again, the investigation, if you want to, you know, call it that. I'm trying to be respectful to both sides. There are so many interviews from the families voicing their frustrations with poor police investigative work from the very beginning. There was one report that one day during lunch at the beginning of this whole investigation, Renee's dad, Richard, got a call from the Fort Worth Police Department. Mm -hmm. And they called him up and they said, hey, Mr. Wilson, we received a tip. The tip was that they had found girls' bodies down a well in Alito, Texas. Okay. I think that's pretty close by. I think Alito is yeah. pretty close by. I can't remember off the top of my head. There's so many little towns in the yeah. Metroplex area, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty close. And so... On that call, they said, hey, we received this tip and we're headed there to investigate. Now, Richard, being the daddy bear that he was, and with a hunch that the police department were being deceitful or deceptive, he followed them. You know he did. He followed the police officers. Yeah. He followed the police officers during their lunch break. And where did they end up? Whataburger. In Alito, Texas. Whataburger. They stopped at the Paris coffee shop somewhere in Fort Worth. Richard parked across the street in some barbershop parking lot and waited and watched them. After the officers left, they straight up returned to the station, called the Wilson's house, and told them that nothing came from the tip about the well. Why did they call him in the first place? Just to get him off their back? For sure. For sure. So not only did the police department lie to this father about going to investigate the tip. They wouldn't eat crepes instead. They wouldn't eat crepes. They didn't even follow up on it. Probably because they were convinced these girls were runaways. Runaways. You know what, Fort Worth? I don't know if I'm going to go back and give you any of my money. I don't, I don't think I'm going to go eat at your delicious ice cream shops anymore. Only if they can find out what happened to the Fort Worth missing trio. You know what? Starting a petition. This is bull. This is bull honky. On this note, I wanted to add in something really interesting about the dynamics with Rachel and her husband, Tommy. Mmm. So remember that Rachel had married Tommy six months before her disappearance. Yas. Okay. Come to find out, Tommy was Deborah's ex fiance. <laughs> what? Did she yep. know this? Who comes to find this out? We came to find it out. <laughs> we came or to find Rachel. Out. Rachel's older oh, sister, sister yeah. Deborah was briefly engaged to Tommy before he married Rachel. Gross. What's even more is Tommy was married to a Shauna, and I'm going to leave out these women's last names because I feel like they don't really have anything to do with this. Yeah, privacy, for sure. Tommy was married to a woman woman Shauna on August 23rd, 1971. Mm -hmm. Together they had Sean, which is who... Rachel was buying the Christmas presents for. Right. Three years later, on April 26, 1974, Tommy and Shauna filed for divorce. Okay. Okay. Three years. Due they to, have a kid. Due to what? Infidelity? Uh, I don't. Reconcilable differences? I don't know. But just was 43. There's no reports of that. Okay. Just 43 days after that divorce, Tommy married 17-year-old Rachel. Gross. But mind you that Tommy's engagement to Deborah was between the divorce and his marriage to Rachel. How did he have time? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
A little less than two years after Rachel's disappearance, Tommy files for divorce from Rachel on the grounds of abandonment. Now, again, just to play devil's advocate, I honestly get this one. Some people may may get mad and say, how could you do that? But what, I mean, what was he supposed to do? There was no sign of them. It had been two years. There were no leads, no bodies, no nothing. So he filed for divorce. It just doesn't stop there. Does that he same... end back up with Deborah? No. Oh, okay. That same year, Tommy files for divorce from Rachel. He marries a woman named Josephine on December fifteenth, mm-hmm. nineteen seventy-six. Okay. Josephine was also seventeen years old. Gross. Tommy and Josephine were divorced less than two years two years later, by June of nineteen seventy-eight. Okay. Again, after that divorce, less than three months, Tommy marries a 23-year-old woman named Ruby. Okay. So this is marriage number four. Okay. It's reported that after these four failed marriages, one arguably being an extenuating circumstance, which was Rachel's disappearance, Mm -hmm. Tommy moved on to marry a woman named Linda, and they all report say that they've been married for 40 years. Okay. The most interesting part of this Tommy saga, if you will, is that the marriage applications between Tommy and Josephine and then Tommy and Ruby were both conducted in the same city, Weatherford, Texas, with the zip code of 76088. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it sure does. Sure does, down there in Weatherford. Records also show, yeah, records also show that both of these marriage applications had a request that the license be sent to the same address in Throckmorton, Texas, 76083. Does that one ring a bell? What? Tommy, what are you doing? There is... Also, another report that there was a recovered deed with both Tommy and Rachel's name on it for a house in Throckmorton, Texas. The document was dated May 1976, nearly 17 months after Rachel disappeared. What? Tommy, you got some explaining to do. Needless to say... There have been people in this case, primarily Rachel's brother, Rusty, and Renee's dad, Richard, that deemed this suspicious or odd. Mm -hmm. However, I just want to be clear that by all other reports, Tommy was cooperative with the police and there have been no evidence whatsoever that Tommy Trulicka was involved in Rachel, Renee, and Julie's disappearance. Okay. I know that in many murders and disappearances, it's always necessary to look at the spouse first. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like you work from the inside out, right? Right. But again, there has been no solid evidence connecting Tommy Trelicka to the disappearance of any of the girls, and he has vehemently denied having anything to do with it. Yeah. I say that just because I want to be careful i don't want to get into like my own opinions about who did what i'm just following the breadcrumbs and just letting you guys make up your own decisions in your own minds mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah i mean honestly i feel like with most of these cases or I, really any true crime crime cases that possibility of it being that you know that one time that it wasn't I just feel is is true in every case. Like I just feel like there's an element of predictability, but there's also a strong element of unpredictability right. with these things. Yeah. I mean, it could have been a friend who was using Tommy's information. I mean, there's like there's no telling. You always have these weird, you know, curveballs. Yeah. According to the Charlie Project, there was one witness that eventually came forward to law enforcement who claimed she observed the three girls being hustled into a pickup truck by unidentified men the day they vanished. Okay. 
though there has never been anything affirmative come from this. Another witness came forward seven years after the disappearances of the trio in 1981 and stated he saw an unidentified male forcing a girl into a van in the mall's parking lot. When the witness approached them, the man told him it was a family dispute and asked him to stay out of it. This tip also has never been verified by authorities. There was also reports that a convicted serial kidnapper named Mike DeBartleben, DeBartleben, not sure, Mark, Mike D, we'll call him Mike D. Hold on, hold on, spell that last name out for me real quick. D-E-B-A-R-D- E-L-E-B-E-N. I think I work with a lady with that same last name. Ooh. I'm like not even joking you right now. Ooh. So this guy, Mike D, was known notoriously as the mall passer, lived only five minutes from Rachel's house around the time of the disappearances. I do. That is her last name. Maybe she's related to the mall passer. Dude, I'll have to ask her. Yeah. What are the odds? Like, I mean, how common is that last name? We literally had a conversation about it last week where I was like, how do you pronounce it? And she's like, here's the weird thing. Everybody, including the people who have, like, been born into that last name. She was like, I got it by marriage, right? She was like, but... Everybody in the family says it a different way. Like, we had this whole ass conversation about it. That's wild. Hmm. So, again, from this whole mall passer, serial kidnapper, nothing came from that either. In August of 1975, so a little less than a year later, there was a private investigator named John Swaim that the family said hired. He had discovered that there was a 28-year-old man who had worked for a local store, the same store that Rachel had put in a work application prior to her disappearance. Okay. So this guy who worked at this local store was making obscene phone calls in the area. Interestingly, this man was using his position in the store to obtain information from young women who had either submitted job applications or had been listed as references. So was he calling people and saying, like, is your refrigerator running? No, they were obscene and then, like, calls. They were you obscene. better go and catch it. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You better let him out. No, it was those obscene. Were, those were prank calls from the 70s. Mm-mm-mm. Nope. Not obscene calls. So six women who had submitted applications to that store reported they had been receiving these obscene phone calls. This man, interesting enough, also lived in the neighborhood of Rachel's parents, but moved away shortly before Rachel married. In the end, once again, nothing came of the investigation into the suspect either. Did they investigate it? You said nothing came from the investigation, but it sounds like they're kind of doing a poor job investigating anything i mean use the term investigation loosely for this case again according to the charlie project in april of 2001 kxas nbc5 in texas reported that a witness came forward to fort worth police investigators with a tip that he had seen the three girls inside a pickup truck with a young male security guard from the Seminary South Shopping Center at approximately 11.30 p.m. on the evening of their disappearance. So that's two witnesses that has seen them in a pickup truck? One, I think, was a van, and one was a pickup truck, maybe. So, But didn't you say there was a girl that said that she saw them in a pickup truck as well? that's right, yeah. So So there are now two people who said that they've seen them in a pickup truck. Yeah. The witness stated that the girls seemed relaxed and appeared to be in the vehicle voluntarily or willingly. He said he had contacted the authorities a few days following the girls' disappearance, 
but that investigators failed to follow through with this lead until April of 2001. 27 years later. Oh my gosh. Dude. <sighs> so frustrating. I really, I don't know. I'm not going to, I, I just, I'm not going to say a whole bunch on that. I mean, I know that there's a lot of controversy around police and law enforcement right now. And I don't think that it's fair to say one way or the other, you know, but that's pretty frustrating. I'm just going to I think it's it one that. of those things that it's really easy to sideline coach oh absolutely right? than actually play in the game absolutely but i think it's safe to say that some things could have been done differently sure yeah now uh, would you remind me did you say what type like what type of neighborhoods these girls are coming from i mean are these middle class I think they're just like yeah like upper normal. middle i don't know honestly lower you know I mean? up lower mid neighborhoods i don't i didn't read anything that that says that it was necessarily like a super impoverished or dangerous community because you know you just always wonder if like you just have these biases that you bring into cases where it's just like oh yeah this stuff happens all the time in that neighborhood you know yeah. kids are running away all the time you know it just it really does it makes sure you, makes you wonder why why were they, given all the evidence that they had, why were they just like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. That's, they probably ran away. So in regard to the security guard who was identified by the witness, um, I'm, excuse me, I went ahead of myself. Authorities told reporters that they located the security guard who was identified by the witness, but that the man denied the girls were in his truck on the evening of December 23rd, 1974. At that time, detectives stated they were actually looking at five suspects and also utilizing DNA testing in their investigation. And when I say at the time, not in 1974, DNA wasn't out, the, out then. Right. I think when this came to light in 2001. Right. It's been 49 years since Mary Rachel Trelicka, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley disappeared from the Seminary Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Since there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of tips, but none of ha none of them have ever led anywhere. This cha this case just keeps getting colder. Hmm. Over the years since the disappearances, there have been private investigators, psychics, potential sightings of the girls from all over, tip after tip, and just nothing, nothing. It's like these girls just vanished out of thin air. And I, that's kind of what I've been thinking this whole time. It's like, this is literally middle of the day in the nation's busiest shopping season. You know what I mean? It's not like it was 11 o'clock at night. Walmart was about to shut down on the edge of town. You know what I right. mean? Like, how many people were out doing the same thing that day? Right. How does this happen? Right. Unfortunately, almost all of the missing trio's parents died before ever knowing what happened to their daughters. Ooh. Cotton Arnold, Rachel's father, died shortly after Rachel's disappearance of stage four melanoma cancer on July 18, 1975. Rayanne Mosley, Julie's mother, passed away on July 30, 2013, and Julie's father, John Mose Mosley, passed away on January 4th, 2002. Lisa Wilson, Renee's mother, died on July 19th, 2015. Richard Wilson, Renee's, Renee's father, who was also passionately dedicated to finding the truth of the disappearance of his daughter, unfortunately passed away before ever finding her. He died on November 10th, 2022. So just last year. <laughs> The girls' remaining family members are still searching for answers. Rachel's younger brother, Rusty, has spent the majority of his adult life looking for his sister. And let me tell you, this guy is a force to be reckoned with. He just does not give a damn. He'll trespass. He'll dig through dirt with any tip that comes his way. Brenda. Yeah. Brenda. Yep. Our mom. 
He would trespass and dig up land just in the pursuit of finding his older sister. Rachel's oh. mother, Fran, Rachel's mother, Fran, puts three angels on her lawn every year at Christmas time to symbolize the missing girls. Oh, Miss Fran. Yeah. Today, Rusty and his wife, Terry, live in the same neighborhood, not far from the house he was living in 45 years ago when his sister disappeared. 49 years ago, technically. And where his mother still lives. Richard Wilson lived in that neighborhood until he died in 2022. And with a heavy heart, that is the frustrating, mysterious, and still unsolved case of the Fort Worth trio. Mary Rachel Trulicka, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley. I don't know about you, Chelsea, but this case needs to be solved. These three precious girls need to be brought home and laid to rest or reunited with their loved ones. So I call to action our Wildside listeners to please share this episode and help ensure that our voices will be heard on behalf of the Fort Worth Trio. Yeah. If you have any information, I mean anything at all, now is the time to act. Even if you're scared or shameful for whatever reason, it's never too late to do the right thing. I believe someone somewhere out there knows something about these girls' disappearances. Yeah, somebody's got to. I mean, look, look at the pictures, you know, and it might trigger one of those like, Ooh, you know what? I think I've, I feel like I've seen, I feel like I've seen this in a family album or, you know what I mean? Like something, something. My money, my money is on like a family secret where it's like a rumor in the family where like their, uh, their second uncle was involved in this, but it's hush hush and nobody talks about it. Yeah. That's what I think is going to have to break. So if you have any information, contact the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-877-8345 or contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. You can also go to the Missing Fort Worth Trio Facebook page and be a part of the continued efforts to find Rachel, Renee, and Julie. Well, and also, guys, technology is only getting better. So you might as well, like, if it is you, <laughs> I hate to say it, you might as well go ahead and just, like, come out on your own terms because it's eventually going to be undercover. Like, it's going to be uncovered. Like, it will. It will It will eventually, as much as, I don't know. I just think you can't hide forever. Might as well come clean. Yeah. And to do the right thing for these families, I can't even imagine living for 49 years not knowing what happened to them. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. So that that is the Fort Worth Trio. Hopefully you guys can do some magic, share this around. Be some voices for these three girls, women now, hopefully, if they're out there somewhere. And try to bring some closure to the family in any way, shape, or form that we can. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, you're valuable, and thank you so much for spending your time and attention with us. We'll catch you on the, the flip, flip side. Bye, guys. Hey, Wildside Tribe, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on 
the, the flip, flip side. side.